Excited about today's podcast. Something a little bit different. Matt Leinart, not different. Awesome. We talked to some college ball with him, some picks for this weekend, a couple of big games in the SEC as well. Uh, and then we'll talk some NIL stuff with him. Terrence Winter is an Academy-nominated screenwriter. He wrote on The Sopranos from season two to season six. Uh, you'll hear all the intro, Wolf of Wall Street. He's got a new show out, so we'll talk with him about his career, what's coming up, life advice, and our picks, our Friday picks. Enjoy. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Matt Liner, Heisman Trophy winner, all around great guy and the co-host of Big Noon on Saturdays, uh, beginning at 10 a.m. on Fox. Uh, I love the show. I think you guys do a great job. Okay, the, the committee rankings came out this week. Tennessee's number one. Do you do you have any strong feelings right now about who you think the best team is in college football? Uh, I actually have Tennessee number one. Um, I think but the resume speaks for itself, but it really has shades of, of LSU a few years ago when uh, Burrow and that offense was ridiculous. The defense kind of slowly got better as the season went along. But I think to this point, um, I've seen Ohio State. Look, we've, we've, I've seen them multiple times in person. I think they're really, really good. Um, I just think Tennessee at this point has proven to be better. Um, but, but I always laugh. I just think it's so funny. The, the anger and hatred that people have for the, the committee after the first week of rankings, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of people in this business. And um, I, I think there's brand bias. I think that the committee really justifies what they want to justify week in and week out. I get that. But at the end of the day, Ryan, like, you know, this, like this stuff always takes care of itself. But what, Tennessee, Georgia play, Michigan, Ohio State play, the Pac-12 championship, like, like that's going to be a big game. Some of those teams are going to play with one loss. Um, TCU is the team, I think, and it will be out there this weekend, which I'm excited about. I think that's the team that can have a little bit of a gripe because I don't know if there's a guarantee that they go undefeated and they're in based on kind of what the committee is already saying about them. I think that's the one thing in the top 10, at least, that really stood out to me that that I think is a legit gripe. But this will play itself out, man. It's just, uh, it's funny to see the the reaction from people. Yeah, I mean, we could say, hey, it always works itself out because these teams have to play each other. But, you know, TCU and Baylor would tell you a bunch of years ago that it didn't work out for them. Um, and certainly Baylor, really. I mean, Baylor, to me, had the argument uh, going back and looking at it. But let's stay in the Big 12 because, like you, you know, I, 
watch all the games from around all the different conferences. I feel like the Big 12 is really good, underrated depth, maybe the second best conference in college football. I don't think it's a crazy statement to make. I just had a harder time like at the top going, okay, do I really, would I pick TCU against Tennessee? Would I pick them against Bama? Again? And the thing is, is like everything we already have, all the pre- preconceived notions, perceptions of these teams, most of us wouldn't pick them. You've got them this week, as you said, you're probably doing some prep for them. Like, how good are they? Like, what is it about them? Not only are they undefeated with, what, four straight ranked wins in a month, which doesn't happen very often, but who are they? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, look, I, I I would say this, like, do I think they can beat Tennessee right now? No. Do I think they can beat Ohio State? No. I, I think they can line up and play with Clemson. I, I believe that. I really do. I mean, I think Clemson is, is a result of because they're Clemson and their brand and the perception. Um, TCU is good. Uh, their offense is really good. And Max Duggan, you know, I, I think we're going to talk about on the show this week. And Max Duggan's numbers are literally right there with Hendon Hooker and CJ Stroud, and he's undefeated. Yet, no one is going to give him any Heisman love. No one's going to give him any love because he's not a sexy pick. He didn't even start the season. Like he, he's a he's a perfect example of just battling and battling, and it's all paying off. I think Sonny Dykes has done a great job with him. They got a big time receiver. If you haven't seen Quentin Johnston, he he's a I think he and Marvin Harrison are, are two of the best in the country. I think he's playing himself into a first-round pick. Uh, he, he's that good. Um, Kendrick Miller, their running back, is really, really good. Their offense is legit. Like, their offense, I think, could score. Um, I don't know if they're as good as Tennessee or Ohio State, but they're right there. Like, they can score with anybody. Their defense is shaky. I mean, you know, their defense is shaky at this point. They've had to come from behind for a couple games, but – like, I don't know. I mean, we look at Tennessee's defense, they're shaky. Uh, we look, we can analyze every team. They deserve to be, in my opinion, ahead of Clemson and, and ahead of a one-loss Alabama. Alabama is a direct product of who they are. Alabama is good. I think they'll probably get to an SEC championship game. But that team is beatable, and that team is vulnerable. And, that, and they might even lose to, to LSU, or they might lose to Ole Miss here in a couple of weeks. But – um, TC is a good football team. I, I just think the big 12 is there's not an elite team and they're all kind of, kind of beating up on each other and TCU has survived so far, but, um, they deserve more credit, man. They're, they're good. And their offense is really good. Who are you going to pick Georgia, Tennessee? I got Tennessee. I, I, I'm telling you, I've got them. I don't know if I have them winning the title yet, but I have them winning the SEC championship game. And I know that means they got to beat Georgia. And I know that means probably they got to beat Alabama for the second time. And I get how hard that is, but I'm telling you, man, like I, I watched, I watched a couple of their games this week because we're talking about them a bunch on the show. Their offense, it's, it is, it is, it is shades of Joe Burrow and LSU. It's a different style with the wide splits and, and sort of the concepts that they do. But I'm telling you, man, every series, it's like, here's a 40 yard play. Here's an 80 yard play. Here's a 20 yard. Like it is, it's ridiculous how good they are. And Hendon Hooker is that is that good, man. Like he's he's again, he's playing himself into that conversation with kind of Stroud and Bryce is maybe maybe I don't know if he's a number one pick, but but getting himself into the first round. Um their defense. A couple of weeks ago, I threw this stat out there, and I'm not sure if you know this, but a couple of weeks ago, they were almost dead last in the country in time of possession, meaning they just score in a flurry. They score really quickly. Um, what that does is just forces their defense to be on the field more than they want. It's just one of those things. So 
Brady Quinn and I always talk about this. I, I, he He's a hater and he always likes to go against me. I'm like, dude, like their defense is on the field for, I think it was 76 plays a game. They're going to give up yards and they're going to give up points. So sometimes those numbers are skewed and, and, and they're not as bad as they seem if you really watch the game and the flow of a game. But I'm on the bandwagon, man. I think this could be their year. Let's stay out west uh, where we're at. That Oregon beatdown to UCLA was something else. Um, and it, I still think UCLA is a good football team. But seeing that version of Bo Nix, a version that, you know, he's always been a tease. Right. You know, there's a reason he left Auburn when it was all other backups transferring in. You know, like, look at that group. And you're like, you left. And then I know he had a couple picks against Cal, but he had six total touchdowns through for 412. Is he becoming a thing now? Is he becoming somebody that, like, you know what? He can play with anybody right now. I do. And I think, you know, he, I think he said, he, you know, if they play Georgia again, that'd be a different outcome. I don't know if they, beat I hope Georgia. so. It certainly wouldn't be that score. Um, he is playing as well as anybody in the country. And sometimes, you know, like, like it, I, I would liken it to when I was in the NFL, like Arizona didn't work out, right? For a lot of reasons. And I go to Houston and I didn't play a lot, but for me in my mind, I just needed a change of scenery. I kind of needed a new coaching style. I just, I just needed a change. And I was like, oh, damn, I can actually play football. Like, I'm actually pretty good. Like, that's how I felt. I, 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 don't, I don't know if that's Bo Nix personally, but like, it, it reminds me of that because it's like, sometimes you just, you're in a spot. SEC's tough. Um, you know, obviously with some of the stuff going on there, you wonder just a little bit of the dysfunction that's going on in Auburn. Um, and he never really materialized into the into the player that maybe we all thought he would be. Plus the pressure, like his following his dad's footsteps, all those things. I'm telling you what, like watching him on film is it, like it makes me smile because he's become such a better passer in the pocket. Um, he's extremely decisive with his throws. He can always take off and run and make those types of plays. He was always really good at that. Um, but like a lot of these quarterbacks I'm seeing, Duggan is an example, Hooker's an example. Like they just like they've they've mastered their offenses and they're playing like we always thought they could. And his numbers are ridiculous. I wish I wish people watched him on the West Coast. I think it, you know in the South and all that you think okay Georgia beat him by 46 points and eh, whatever you don't get a chance to watch Oregon that much. Oregon's really good. Like they're they're a much different team than they were week one, and Bo Nix is a big part of that. He 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 should he should one thousand percent be in the Heisman discussion. Um, and he's got a game against Utah here coming up in a couple of weeks that I think um, will hopefully sort of kind of catapult him more into that discussion from a national standpoint. But uh, he's playing, man. He's playing really well. I'm reading Jeff Perlman's Bo Jackson biography, and there's a time where Bo Jackson is running around in camp with the Raiders and you know, there's a million interviews in the book. So I don't remember exactly which Raiders coach it is, but Bo Jackson shows up and he starts blowing past these all pro defensive players. And they're kind of like, wait, what the hell's going on? And this coach basically says, you know, you do it long enough. You kind of know where players are in the margins physically, right? The worst guys. And then there's that top top, but it's all kind of within the margins. He's like, and then Bo Jackson stepped in the field and it shatters everything you think you've seen physically in this game. Okay, that was a bit of a hyperbole setup to Caleb Williams for SC. But what are we talking about with him as far as the physical gifts at that position in comparison to what is the norm? He, he's, 
he's special. And I, I had, I had some reservations. Um, and again, like, like you have to think like, he's still so young. So like last year and, and, and being at Oklahoma, right. With the expectation, the pressure, and they didn't have a particularly great year. I think they, what, they lost two games last year, three games. Well, he had a bumpy spot. You're right. Sorry to interrupt, but he he had a stretch in the middle of the season. We were like, wait, you know, I thought this guy was the savior. Just go ahead. Exactly. Well, yeah, he struggled against the two best defenses he had played last year, and Baylor was one of those. We were at that game, so everyone was kind of like, all right, slow down the hype train and all that. I watched him. Comes to USC. I watched him in spring football. Um, I've been around him a bunch, obviously, with with kind of what we're doing with Hollow Goats and stuff, and just gotten to know him on a different level. Um, been at fall camp, been, been out to practice this season. And he's, he's really unique and he's unique in the sense where physically he's really built like a running back. Like, like he's, you know, he's built like Jalen hurts, like Jalen hurts is a big, thick dude who can withstand hits and obviously can run. And he's, he's very, very savvy and shifty and fluid when he runs. Caleb is built like that. I don't know if you've seen him in person, but like his, 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 his butt, his legs, like he's built like that guy and he's thick. Um, so that's one thing that really stands out in person. Like, dude, this guy, he can move. He's fast as hell, but like, he's, he's built like a running back. And then you start to see the arm, you know, like, all right, like, is he Josh Allen, Mahomes? Like, like now those guys are one-of-ones, right? But like, he's right up there with arm strength. And then I'm watching these games this year. You know, we fly, we fly home after the game on Saturday. So I get to watch a lot of these games on the plane and I'm, I'm sitting here watching some of the plays that he makes and just some of the, the improv and just some of the like, Hey, sometimes you just got to go run around. You got to make a play. Cause that's kind of what this game is morphed into with some of these, these players playing the quarterback position. And Ryan, like I'm telling you, dude, like he's, he's, he is, he's a number one pick. Like he'll be the number one pick in the draft. Not this year, but next. I think he's that good. And the one thing that I'll say this, and people don't know this about him, and and I I talked to Lincoln about it, I talked to Hidden about it. He is like he is a film rat. He's a gym rat. Um, he he is wants to be the best he can possibly be. He's super. He's he's very unique in his own way and his personality. But like like I, I just sat down with him last month um, at the interview and. He, I was just asking him about like LA life, man. Like, what's it been like? You come from Norman, and and he's like, honestly, like, and he's doing a lot in NIL, and he's he's been a face of that. But like, he's like, honestly, I just I wish I was just in the film room like twenty four hours a day. Like, I don't really like going out. Uh, like, like, and he's dead serious. Like, he's just one of those guys. So that's a long winded answer, man. But like, it, it's it's it took a while because I think like you, there were some reservations. Like, is he as good as the hype and all that? Like. He's phenomenal, and uh, to me, he's going to be the number one pick in the draft probably next season. He had a throw in the Utah game where I texted you immediately, and I just went, are you kidding me with this throw? Like, just the torque and the rip, and it was like, I don't know if there's another guy in college football who makes that throw, and shit, even when there was 16 seconds left, they were at their own 16 at the end of the half. I'm thinking, like, he still has a chance to put some points up right now, and you know, their issues are, are certainly not him. You know, there was some stuff, maybe the Fresno game, where I was like, is he hanging on the football a little too long? Is he is right. he almost spoiled by the offense? Like, the, yeah, I mean, whatever. He's a younger guy that, you know, not everybody's going to deal with with uh, pressure the same way when you're feeling it the first time. But I, I just think physically he's kind of in his own class. That's all. He, he like, like you just said, like he can make every throw. And some of those throws are, 
are just like, holy, like there's not a lot of guys that can make that. Um, he's, he's, he's a lot like Bryce Young in, in what you just said. Like there could be 10 seconds on the clock. There could be 30. I, I just, I like, like, you know, in, in, in the NFL, it's, it's Brady. It's, it's even Josh Allen. like, like we got a shot because we got Caleb Williams at quarterback. Like we know we could, like we got a shot regardless of where we're at in the field. Like he, he's one of the rare guys in college football where I just would feel totally comfortable when he steps on the field. Now to your point, like th- there's holes on this team. I mean, this team isn't, um, you know, th- this is his first year. I think he's done a great job with what he's had, adding pieces, transfer portal. Uh, Caleb obviously masks a lot of some of those deficiencies even as a, as a as a as a team on both sides of the ball but yeah man he's he's a he's a he's a rare rare talent do you give lsu any shot this weekend at home against Bama? um yeah i do i mean i i give him a shot i don't what's i don't know what the spread is i think they might cover um but uh Jaden Daniels is playing really good, man. Like, like they, they got speed, they got talent. Um, I think they're, they're, they're getting better every single week. Um, I just, I don't know. I just think Alabama is kind of one of those teams that sure as, as, as up and down as they've been. And, you know, Bryce is taking a beating every week. They don't have the receivers and the guys on the outside like they've had in the past. I just think I just think they're I just I just I like them in this game. I think LSU's got a shot, but I like Bama in this game. I, um, I think Bama's going to win their division. I think they'll beat Ole Miss. Um, I'm not. I love Lane, but I don't think Ole Miss is as good as probably maybe people think they are. Um, I think Bama gets to the title game. Bama right now is minus thirteen at LSU on FanDuel Sportsbook. Do you have? I know it's early, but I feel like you guys are. You know, you have so much Big Ten stuff going on, and you've already been out on the road so many times. For are you getting a feel on Michigan, Ohio State? Because like you know, when I look at Michigan, I love the weapons. I can't believe the defensive ends. You know, there wasn't mm-hmm. nearly the drop off that you would expect after losing two first rounders. Uh, those guys have been terrific. Um, you know, in Ohio State, like there's a weird game against Penn State, and Penn State's the one turning the football over. Like you're looking at the score, going, "Oh wait," you know, is this one of those classic like oh, Ohio State can get out of their way, but even really good teams end up having that one week where they lose that game and Ohio State gets clean out of it. So I don't want to be just dismissive of like who's been better the last five years, which seems to always be kind of the deciding factor how we feel about these more marquee matchups. Are you feeling any kind of lean at all after last year? Yeah, no, it's a good question. The thing it's, we, we clearly, we've seen both teams a lot this year. Um, When you look at Michigan and to your point, they, they, Michigan is really good, man. Like, like Michigan could beat anybody in the country. I think they're, I think they have that capability. Um, and those D linemen, like Morris, Oki, like those guys are, it's hard to say they're as good as what Hutchinson and Ajabo were, but like they're playing that way as far as production and, and impacting the game. Um, they, they, I mean, I don't think they've really been tested. You know, they got Penn State at home. I think Penn State's a good football team. I don't think Penn State's a great football team. I don't know. I, you know, the game's at the shoe this year, so I would probably give Ohio State the edge, and I just think that offense and those receivers are that good. Um, and we still have a little bit of questions, I think, about J.J. McCarthy as far as can they throw the ball for 400 yards or 40 times a game to win? They haven't had to, and they might not have to because Blake Corum is, is, the, is freaking good. And that line is great. And they might not have to do that, but 
if they do, like that's the one thing. And they, they won't get tested until Michigan or until Ohio State. My biggest concern with Ohio State, though, is they can't run the ball. And that's two weeks in a row now where they played Iowa, who Iowa's really good defensively. We know how bad they are offensively, but they could not run the ball against Iowa, not, not even close. Um, they couldn't run the ball against Penn State, and Michigan ran for 400 yards on them. And like that's a that's a consistent theme, I think, here for Ohio State. They didn't run the ball in particular well last year at times. Oregon, the game they lost to early in the season, Michigan. So that is my concern. Like when you play a team like Michigan who can get after the passer, who's got good guys on the back end, if you can't run the football, like you're you're gonna be in trouble. Um especially with Henderson and Mayan Williams and those guys, that that's the concern. And I know that's a concern for them. That's two weeks in a row now. So, you know, that's the something I think to keep a, keep an eye on here is the next couple of weeks go by is maybe more of an emphasis on them trying to get back to like a, being a consistent running football team, um, which will help them. But, you know, look, that game's a toss up. Like I, I've seen them both. They're both really, really good in their own ways. Final two things here. Hall of Goats, you've got the goated hat on. I know you've talked to me about this. Explain what you guys are doing and and what the uh, I don't want to get all technical and go mission statement on you here, but I think that fits. Yeah, so so Hall of Goats is a is a gaming company that we're basically built a this platform to help uh, service these players and their NIL. So what that means is we're building a arcade style college football game um, where fans, players, someone like you who's a fan of the game can buy um, these players' digital assets, import them into our video game and play with them and use them and level them up and, um, you know, buy buy accessories, all sorts of things. Um, you remember like NFL Blitz and NFL Street, like NBA Jam, right? Like cool, fun, arcade-style games. Like So think of that um, for Hall of Goats. So... We wanted to create a platform and a game where these players, one, can make money off their NIL, but they can also own, they can own their own assets and they can control those and they can build a kind of brand off of that. Um, and based on the blockchain technology that we've built, um, it allows them to do that. So um, it's cool, man. Like it's a lot of fun. Uh, we're signing... Um, some pretty top tier talent, college football, um, some legendary players. Um, and it's, and it's a great, it's going to be a great way for fan bases and just gamers to connect with their favorite players and play with them and, uh, have fun doing it. How's Cole doing? He's crushing. He's crushing, man. He, uh, it's so funny, man. It's like, one, he just turned 16, right? So, you know, just dealing with 16-year-olds. But, like, the whole kind of recruiting process is, like, starting to start. And coaches are reaching out. And, like, the seven-on-seven club team. Like, it's just, like – and, again, he's got hoops coming up, too, after the football season. But, like, NIL, people are knocking on my door. Like, it's just, uh, it's wild. And you know, you know him a little bit. And obviously, you know me on a personal level. Like, it's just, it's really interesting to like take my uh, goaded hat off, take my NIL hat off, take my college football, you know, job hat off and just be a dad and like be consumed in like 
trying to do what's best for him, you know? So, um, but he, he had a great year, man. Freshman, they, they their freshman team was ridiculous. Like they went undefeated. He had a great year. He backed up on varsity all season long. So he got a lot of burn on varsity in modern day, which is number one team in the country through his first touchdown pass a couple of weeks ago. Like he's, he's doing great. He's working hard. He loves it. Um, it's special, man. Like he, it's going to be a fun, I tell everyone, man, it's gonna be a fun couple of years here coming up to, to kind of watch him grow into, I think what, what he can become. And it could be, could be really cool. Okay. So the recruiting part of this starts, this is an incredible dynamic because not only are you doing the NIL stuff, you went through it a different era. Um, I mean, nobody can possibly try to bullshit you at this stage, right? Do they even bother? That's, that, that's the good thing is, is uh, yeah, exactly. So like <laughs> I've, I've had the conversation literally in my mind a thousand times, like, People have already started. I said, listen, this isn't, this isn't happening now until he starts playing and he starts really kind of earning that right. You know, I, look, I want him, like, as weird as it is to say, you can make money in California in high school. Go for it. Like, I'm not going to hold you back from that. But, you know, doing it the right way and he can take care of his teammates and he can do some cool stuff. And, and obviously, I'm in it. So I, I know. But I think that's the advantage um, that we'll have as a family um, is, is, I just, I know what's going on. I, 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 I work in the space. I see uh, from my side, I see from marketing people's side, I see the agent side. I, I see, I know coaches. I mean, I know, I know a lot of people in this world in this college football world. So um, yeah, it, it'd be pretty funny to see if someone tries to sneak something past me. Plus my wife literally is uh, an attorney who works in the NIL space. So um yeah, message for all those people. Don't don't try to take advantage of the liners. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so does that mean then, Cole? I mean, I don't know how much you want to share here. I'm just fascinated by the topic. So I mean, you go, but yeah. I assume he's been offered money already through a high school NIL. I mean, there's there's obviously not only his talent, it's the name. You know, everybody's interested. So what's like this stuff's already happening with him? It is. And so it's funny you ask. So like the conversation is really simple. Dad, um, how much money do you think I, like, you know, he's a, he's a little, he's a, he's still a kid, you know, like, and this is new. It's like, yeah, how, how much money do you think I can make? And like, I'm like, whoa, 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 listen, focus on, focus on school, focus on sports. That'll all take care of itself. And like, that's literally the tone that I sell them because I don't want, that's, this is the part of the NIL where you want that. You don't want them focusing on that kind of stuff. He's naive. He's young. Um, so I said, whoa, 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 no, like, like, who knows, dude, like you just focus on your stuff. It'll all take care of itself. But then I get, you know, I get, cause like I, you know, I do marketing myself. I do, I speak to companies, do all these things. And like, I, I got one, I think not too long ago, like, Hey, we got 10 grand, right? I've got 10 grand. They want to do like this cool, um, like this clothing line, uh, maybe like a father son photo shoot. And like, I'm like, one, I, I don't want any part of this personally. This is his deal. And two, We'll pass, but thank you. Like, like that's it. And I and I don't know if he'll end up watching this, but like I don't really tell him a lot of it because he doesn't need to know. Like it, it'll it'll happen. So, you know, shielding him from it as long as possible is what we want to do, just because there will come a time and place. Um, but it it is fascinating, man. And like I I I find myself asking a lot of advice to to dads who are going through it. Uh to coaches who, who are coaching it. Like when I'm on the road, I, I, cause people know him, right? Like he's, he's a recruit, like he's a big time, he's going to be a big time recruit. So they always ask me, how are you dealing with that as a dad? I'm like, honestly, 
any advice you can give me because this is going to get, it's going to get wild. And as you said, the name obviously, but, but being at modern day, who's won, you know, they're, they're maybe going to win a third national championship in a row. Like he's going to be the quarterback of that team in the next couple of years. So there's the exposure and all those things. So he handles it really well. He really does. He's really, you know, his personality, he's really kind of laid back. He's a lot like I was kind of laid back, just kind of goes with the flow. Like, kind of just like goes out there and balls and then goes home. You know, like he doesn't like, it, it doesn't, he's a kid yet and we're not yeah. going to let it. Affect him. No, I, I obviously really like him. Um, I, all my, interactions he's funny, man. He, he, he's, he, he's really funny. Like he can't, like he sees all his boys like offers come in. He's like, yeah, like, come on, man, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to get these offers line, buddy. Like you're a freshman. Like, He's just new to it all. So it's, it's, uh, he's excited, which I love. He's excited about it, which is a great thing. Wow. I, uh, I'm really happy for you, man. I can't wait to see where this all goes. Thanks, dude. Appreciate you, man. Football season is heating up, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because right now new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's free bets back if your first bet doesn't win. Just sign up with the promo code RYAN, R-Y-E-N. Make sure you check out our pick segment right before Life Advice on every Friday's episode. FanDuel has tons of betting options for each game. With live betting, you'll get updated odds on games that have already started. So if you're a little late to it, can't get the bet in. I mean, that used to be the nightmare back in the day. And now it's like, all right, whatever. I woke up second quarter. Boom. What are the live odds? And with FanDuel's new live same game parlays, you can create even one after kickoff. The app is safe, secure, and super easy to use. And you get paid your winnings fast. So sign up today with the promo code Ryan, R-Y-E-N, for your no sweat first bet. Make every moment more this season with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Must be 21 and older in select states. First online real money wager only. Refund issued with non-betrouble free bets that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. It's like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options, to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did. And even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Tulsa King will be on Paramount. You can watch it streaming Paramount Plus. It'll be out November 13th. Uh, and one of the co-creators, Terrence Winter, an incredible resume. Sopranos season two to the finish of the sixth season. Creator of Boardwalk Empire and an Oscar nomination for the screenplay for Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, huge fan, man. This is really exciting. Thanks for doing this today. Same here. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So I always like to ask any creators, you know, you work with Taylor Sheridan, who we all know his resume as well. The, the origin of the Tulsa King story. How did this all start? Uh, for me, it started in, uh, I think, mid-2020, 
one, I got a call that Taylor had written a pilot uh, pretty quickly, apparently like over three days. He had this idea uh, that for Sylvester Stallone, basically about an aging mobster who sort of gets sent uh, to the middle of nowhere, which in his original version was Kansas City. A really fun idea. They told me about it. And they said, you know, obviously Taylor being so incredibly busy, can't do anything with this, but he wants you to take a look at it. And if you're interested in joining up and taking this over, he would love to have you. So, you know, I basically was like, great, where do I sign? You know, this sounds great. And especially the idea of working with Stallone. So I read the pilot. I thought it was terrific. I had some ideas of my own, you know, some changes I wanted to make. Uh, you know, we added the backstory. You know, originally Stallone's character hadn't been in jail when you see the show now. He's just getting out of prison after 25 years. I changed the location from Kansas City to Tulsa, Oklahoma, because it felt much more remote to me. Uh, you know, made those changes and we were basically off and running. So I signed on and we just sort of took it. It was, it was actually a really easy process. I had literally one conversation with Taylor over Zoom. Uh, he said, Great, this is your baby. Take it and run with it. I have visitation rights. And Go and uh, go and do your thing, and that's that's what we did. There's a lot of creative trust there uh, because I imagine you've yeah. had many thousands and thousands of hours by yourself creating your own little babies, and then mm -hmm. to then shift as you have, whether it being in rooms and other shows. How how does that dynamic change the writing? You know, well, this was you know because I had such autonomy. You know, everything except the original idea was sort of just given over to me. So you know, take this premise, you know, which I thought was a brilliant one, and then you know, go with it. You know, I think part of the genius of of Taylor's creation here was to take two tried and true genres and just smash them together into a new thing. One of the big challenges, you know, in writing in the gangster genres, you know, you're trying to find a fresh way in is generally stuff has already been done, but taking a monster and dropping them into cowboy country, I thought was really interesting. Also for me too, the idea that taking a guy in the twilight of his years, who's, who's really got a limited amount of time left and very limited conflict resolution skills uh, and saying, okay, here now go, go here and make a living. You know, it was really interesting to me. Uh, you know, he's trying to rectify the sins of his past and sort of rebuild a new life and build a new crew out of this group of people that may as well be Martians to him. So it was really, really fun. It was a really interesting, you know, uh, playground. But, yeah, it was it was it was easy, again, aside from the idea that, you know, wasn't my original premise. I mean, the premise itself was was great. And I was like, I could take this and have a ball. It's a lot of fun, you know, and I, I don't mean to be simplistic about the description of it, but I watched the pilot last night. And it's just fun. It's just fun to see Stallone with these beats and in this world in a setting yeah. that isn't natural for these kinds of stories. And I'm wondering when you write the character versus writing for somebody like Stallone, where there's so much buy-in, as soon as he's mm -hmm. on the screen, the audience is like, okay, all right, I get it. Like, how does that work when you're writing for somebody you haven't cast yet in your head, as opposed to this scenario where you're like, okay, now I'm writing for Stallone? Well, it makes it easier for me. You know, I, I know some writers don't like to have an actor in mind, but for me, like, you know, I, I knew Leonardo DiCaprio was going to be Jordan Belfort. And that was that was so helpful in writing the character and also to have Sly's voice in my head for, you know, the last, you know, since 1976 really was helpful. And also, you know, just imagining him. You know, I also knew a little more about him. Personally, like I know how smart he is. I know how funny he is. Uh, I know, you know, he, he obviously brings this inherent charm with him. He, you know, you just immediately like the guy. So that all helped inform the writing. Like I knew like this character, could, for example, could kind of get away with 
not murder exactly, but kind of get away with anything and you're kind of on his side. As long as he's not, you know, a, a complete asshole or hurting kittens, you know, you're kind of on board with this guy, particularly once you know the backstory. that He's been, he's just got out of jail. He's kind of been, you know, screwed over and, you know, you're really rooting for him. So having that voice and that idea of who he was in my head was really easy, made the writing process a lot easier. And, and I was really excited to, you know, this is really, I think, you know, one of the very few times you're going to see him you know, really do comedy and, and be sarcastic and funny and, and have monologues, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't get a lot. I think that was very appealing to him too, is that he actually gets to, you know, rant a little bit, you know, which you don't really get to see in a lot of his other movies. I want to back up because uh, I like your story, NYU St. John's to the mm-hmm. writer's room of Flipper. How, do, <laughs> how does that happen? That was a long, circuitous route. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do except be rich. Uh, and uh, I, I grew up in a you know fairly blue collar neighborhood. I went to an automotive high school uh, called Grady, William E. Grady Vocational Technical High School. Graduated from there, was in a deli business, kind of finagled my way into NYU, figured I needed to get an education. And then, you know, again, my big ambition was, you know, well, a good job means a job where you make a lot of money. The only two jobs I knew that you could make a lot of money were doctor and lawyer. That was the extent of my worldview. So I said, I'll go to law school. I had in the back of my mind, I had a high school teacher who told me I was a good writer. And I kind of parked that away. But yeah, the idea of being a writer for a living, particularly a writer in Hollywood, was just like, what? You know, that, if I would have told my friends that they would have thrown me in the creek in, in Brooklyn. I was like, you know, it really, you know, that's, that's something other people do. So I went to law school, hated every minute of it, uh, graduated, passed the New York bar. I was the worst lawyer ever because I just did not care. Uh, and I was somewhere, you know, in my late 20s when I finally just had this crisis of, of not wanting to get out of bed and go to work in the morning. And I finally had to face the fact like, okay, what is it you actually want to do? And the deep, dark secret was I wanted to be a TV sitcom writer. And once I was able to say that out loud, my whole life changed. And people, of course, everybody thought I lost my mind. All my friends in Brooklyn were like, wait a minute, you automotive high school, first one in your family to go to college, law school, New York bar, you're in a major Manhattan law firm, you're going to quit that and move to LA where you've never been to write scripts and you've never written a script before. And I said, yeah, exactly. That's my, were point. you funny? I thought I was. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't in your sure. group, you know, I was funny with my friends in front of my family. It's interesting. And if you remember Billy Crystal's movie, Mr. Saturday night, you know, he talks about the idea of having like, I think it's called, he calls it living room balls or actual balls. You know, you have balls in front of your friends and you're funny. Go do that on a stage in front of an audience. So I sort of put myself to that test. I said, if I think I can do this for a living. But the quickest way to find out if you're actually funny is go on stage and perform. So I did stand up for a couple of months in the or very early 90s in New York, you know, Catch a Rising Star, the com- comic strip, wrote my own material and actually did OK. So it's like, OK, you just proved it. You can do this. And I had no interest in being a stand up. It's funny. I just had this conversation with Colin Quinn uh, recently, who's a, a friend. And, you know, I was saying to him, like the challenge, I said, there, when you do it, the, there is no sound in the world louder than people not laughing. It's like getting punched in the face. You know, you go out there, you think, oh, this is going to kill and nothing, crickets. And then they'll laugh at something you didn't even think was a joke. It was just sort of a transition to another joke. And it it, it can make you real. But I was like, great, I found out what I needed to know. I can write material that people will laugh at. And if other people perform it, I should do okay. So that gave me the confidence to head out to L.A. And I just sort of started writing. Flipper came about when I started actually getting work. My standards for taking a job were really high. You had to ask me 
do you want this job? And I said, yep, I absolutely. I didn't care what it was. I couldn't believe people were paying me to write. I still can't, you know, in some ways. I still don't feel like this is a, a legit job, you know. So it's something I would do anyway and something I love doing. Uh, so I'm one of those really lucky people who just sort of makes a living at doing what they love. So I didn't chart a career path or, you know, think, oh, well, this won't look good on my resume. Again, if you said, do you want to write this? I said, yeah. Uh, the problem with Flipper particularly is that there are maybe 10 stories in the world that organically involve a dolphin. And when you have an order for 24 episodes, once you find those 10 stories, you've got 14 to go. That writer's room is is really a dark place. It was ch really challenging. And I don't know anything about dolphins and marine biology and you know or animals in general i grew, again grew up in brooklyn pigeons and police horses are about as the extent of it you know so fast forward in a couple of years and i've i've seen you know going back to some older interviews that you've done you know talking about seeing the sopranos pilot and then freaking yeah. out because it reminded oh. you home and all the people you'd grown up with take us through that part and actually getting on the show you know which yeah. is which is pretty amazing that leap yeah it was it was a huge leap i i saw the pilot i i literally think i was trembling it was it was so good and so unbelievably real i felt like i knew these people uh and you know i grew up in a neighborhood in brooklyn that you know had a uh a, a mob presence i actually worked in a butcher shop as a teenager a butcher shop that was a chain of butcher shops that was owned by paul castellano uh, called CNS Meat Market, Castellano and Sons. And a, a little earlier, a little later as a teenager, I worked in an illegal card game run by a guy named Roy DeMeo. If you ever heard the book, heard of the book Murder Machine, I worked, you know, for these guys. So I, you know, by osmosis, I sort of understood that world, knew how these guys operated. So when I saw The Sopranos, I was like, I, I called my agent immediately. I said, you've got to get me on the show. My second call is to a guy named Frank Renzulli, who's one of the original writers on the show, who gave me my first job in this business, sort of a show he co-created called The Great Defender. I called Frankie. I said, have you seen this thing? He said, yeah, I'm actually meeting with David Chase on Friday. So you got to get me in there with you. As it turned out, Frankie was the last guy David hired for season one. And then the doors closed. So I was sort of shut out, but sort of watching from the sidelines. And Frankie was telling me about the writer's room. And I was actually editing some of his work. So I was kind of writing on the Sopranos in the first season, even though David didn't know it. But I was on a show called The PJs at the time, uh, created by Larry Wilmore and Steve Tompkins. It was this Eddie Murphy claymation show that was really funny. So I was on the PJs, Sopranos was happening, and season one finished and turned out, you know, some of the original writers didn't work out and David was open to accepting new writers. So he said, great, this is my shot. And I had written a, a movie, my first movie script called Brooklyn Rules, uh, which ultimately got made, but I had a kind of a mob element to it. I said, oh, this is the perfect writing sample. So David read it and then Frankie called me, he said, David hates it. I was like, you're kidding me. I said, no, so, but to his credit, and Frankie, you know, his dear friend said to David, you know what, fuck that script. I'm telling you, this guy can write the show. And David said, all right, if you're vouching for this guy, fine, I'll give him a shot. And he gave me a shot and I wrote uh, what became the, uh, an episode in season two called Big Girls Don't Cry. And it was sort of a test episode. And this was the scariest thing that ever happened to me. Uh, David had called me up and made me an offer to come on staff of the show. But I had been working at that point for like six or seven years and I was at the co-producer level, which is sort of a, you know, as on, in the steps up the up the food chain. And I'd been at the co-producer level for many years at that point because I, I kept bouncing back between comedies and dramas. So every time I would move, I would always make a lateral move. So David said, I want to offer you a job on the show. And he actually offered me a demotion from the co-producer thing. And I said, I I can't take this. I'm sorry. And 
and he said, huh? Oh, what? Okay. Um, I said, I, I need to at least come in at the level I'm in. And he said, all right, let me, let me think about it. Let me call you back. And I hung up the phone and I was just like, I just turned down a job on the Sopranos. And I, I, my head almost exploded. But I, I, as it turned out, it, it turned out to be exactly the right thing to say to David. He, he totally got it. He's like, I totally understand. I said, I can't look myself in the mirror in the morning if, if I don't, if I take a demotion. And, uh, but it was the longest 15 minutes of my life. And then obviously I got the job and, and my world changed and my life changed. I mean, that, that show just opened every conceivable door for me. Like a lot of people, one of my favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite, it might be my favorite, Pine Barrens, your episode, one of the 25 that you wrote, Buscemi directed it. I I like how when a show finally is like, okay, we're, we're good. You guys are good at this. It's an awesome show. And then it's like, well, now what we can do, you know, because if you were to say, all right, for 45 minutes of this episode, Polly and Chris are going to be in the woods. Right. <laughs> you might go like, yeah. and yeah, then what it, else happens? It um, came at the right time. I think, you know, the show had already settled in. Again, as you say, you know, we were already knew everybody and we were ongoing. That episode actually originated with Tim Van Patten, who was one of our uh, amazing directors in the show. Uh, Timmy came into the writer's room one day and I was sitting there with another writer bouncing around stories. And he said, I have an idea, but it's really stupid. I said, what? Can't be any dumber than what we're talking about. And he said, well, it's Paulie and Christopher had a dream. He had a dream. Paulie and Christopher going to the woods to whack a guy and then they get lost. I said, that's fucking great. Tell David. And he was too shy. He said, no, I don't want to. I said, I'm, I'm going in there right now. I'm telling him. So I knocked on David's door. I said, you got to hear the story. So I told him the story. And David said, great, let's do it. You know, but we, we it was too late in season two. He goes, we'll do it next year. And then it became, I think, the 10th episode or ninth episode of season three. And it was, again, perfect timing. And just total happenstance that Steve Buscemi directed it. You know, you you hire your directors way in advance. So you, you you get your schedule and then you see who's available. And Steve was slated to direct whatever episode 10 was going to be. And it just turned out to be Pine Barrens. And that's how I met Steve. And then, of course, years later, you know, worked with him on Boardwalk Empire and became good friends. I, I guess I think, you know. Christopher, you know, Michael Imperioli. He's my favorite character, like again, like a lot of people, yeah. Uh, because he's he's struggling with all these different things, and you're always rooting for him. Because you know, on my second watch through, and again, this isn't like some big surprise. I was like, man, these guys are terrible. <laughs> like, like yeah. Tony's. A, not, I mean, I know this isn't breaking news that Tony Soprano <laughs> wasn't a good guy, but like all of the beats, and I think that's what I liked about something you had said, and especially at the time that we got this show, is that you realize. This wasn't some moral 80s show where we tied it all up in a bow at minute 22 mm-hmm. and we all went home with some punky Brewster lesson. You know, I mean, that's what right. TV had been for far too long, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. this was everybody kind of does the wrong thing all the time. Yeah, it was very unsettling, you know, a lot of times. You know, David said, you know, at one time, David Chase said, you know, the function of network TV is to make you feel like everything's OK and you should buy this product. And that was the opposite of what we were doing. There was a lot of times you came away thinking everything is not okay. Sometimes the bad guys win, justice doesn't prevail, scumbags, you know, succeed and good people, you know, get screwed over. Uh, you know, and it, and it leaves you like really kind of, you know, kind of shaken and thinking about things. And you know, somebody once said, and I don't know who to attribute this to, but they said, Art, art uh asks questions, it doesn't give answers. And, you know, that's what we were kind of aspiring to, you know, and walking away, you know, you, you love that experience. And you walk away from a movie and you go, God, what do you think that meant? You know, where do you think those characters are now? And it's so rare that you have that experience. And we, we kind of aspired to give that experience to the audience. Do you think executives have far less trust in the audience than the writers? 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a constant debate I have, uh, you know, with, with creative execs, you know, at, at every studio I've ever worked in is like, please give the audience a little more credit. The, you know, they're, you know, there's, you know nobody's going to get this. Somebody's going to get it. And, you know, and, and this is written for those people, you know, just like, please stop talking down. You know, the audience, the audience is a lot smarter, a lot more savvy than you think. I mean, I guess they the instinct is to want to appeal to the low, the the biggest group, but then that's the lowest common denominator. And you're, you're just constantly dumbing things down to make it where everybody can understand everything. And, you know, that that's just not satisfying. I mean, I, I try to, I, I go into it assuming the audience has a certain uh, knowledge of, of the world and a, a knowledge of history and context and pop culture and, and various things. And these are the things too. I mean, you know, there's been a million times I've been watching things like, you know, whether it's Mad Men or Deadwood and, and there's these weird obscure references that I'll just file away and I'll Google it later and go, oh, that was interesting. Or I don't have to understand exactly what they're saying. I, I You know, you sort of this context clues or you basically infer from the conversation what's happening. And it's fine. You still get it, you know, and it's it, it works, you know, well. And but, yeah, I really am always determined to try to try to write up, you know, not instead of writing down. In a way, too, I also don't necessarily blame the executives considering that their life is made up of probably like 90% bad ideas, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So so back to Chris, the the line that I've always loved, I forget exactly which episode, when he's talking about, you know, finally getting out, he's like, all right, maybe I can get out. It's like in the middle. I mean, he's still with Adriana. And he's like, I can finally write my memoirs. And it's just, it's like, (laughs) you know, all these things you're like, at times, you know, when people could talk about like sometimes the industry doesn't like when some form of television or film will take on Hollywood. Right. And you guys had a blast with it. I mean, you carried it out forever where he's this person. He's, he's trying to figure out how to write. He's trying to do all these different things. He's got the awful slasher movie and you kept staying to it. And I think in other shows it would have been like, what are they doing with this? It keeps right, going. Right. And it always worked because there was always like this hope that Christopher could, Christopher could find his way out and, and, right. and accomplish these things that he had that were so foreign from what he was involved with. Well, you know, it's very real, too. I mean, look at the proliferation of mob podcasts from guys who are actually in the mob and mob books and, and TV shows. And you get mobsters who are, you know, guys who are li- the real deal, who are exec producers on movies and consultants. and everything. So there's, you know, there's always been a, uh, a a real tie in between the real guys and entertainment. And, and it is entertaining. And look, the gangster film has been around since, the, the, I mean, the very first film, The Great Train Robbery is basically arguably a gangster film. And it's just endlessly fascinating. So who better to tell those stories or work with the people who tell stories than the guys who live that life? So it was very, you know, David hit on something, you know, making Christopher an aspiring screenwriter, uh, you know, was really uh, prescient. And then we just had so much fun, you know, just skewering the business and writing in general, specifically being a writer and the award shows and the, the Writers Guild and, you know, all of that stuff. It was, it was just great. And I think the audience liked it. Uh, pretty, I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah, I, I always did. And, you know, this is going to kind of transition to something else. But like one of my favorite movie scenes in recent memories, Once Upon a, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where DiCaprio has to figure out how to play a bad actor and then kind of get back to like an actor who's pretty good and reminding mm-hmm. himself how good he is. But he still isn't peak Leo DiCaprio. Right. And he's, right. he's playing these lanes yeah. all in the same movie, man. And, you know, like yeah, I'm watching. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's no, that's mind blowing to me. I mean, any, you know, it's anybody who thinks acting is easy hasn't acted. 
Uh, you know, when and I, you know, there's a lot of people, oh, yeah, what are you going to do? Stand up there. Well, what's my motivation? I go, you clearly have never tried to do this. It is so unbelievably fucking hard. Uh, and, and to see somebody who, who does it at that level or who, who can completely divorce themselves from the idea that you are surrounded by 80 people pointing cameras and lights at you and then just just behave normally or or like you're alone uh, and just be fearless. And, you know, you I was lucky enough to, you know, to stand next to a, a Jim Gandolfini or, or, or Steve Buscemi or Bobby Cannavale or Leo and watch that process. It's just unbelievable. And then to act like act like you can't do it. It, it, like you just described, it's just a whole other level of talent. And it's just, it's, it, it, yeah, I've been doing this a long time, but I'm still blown away when I see how, how people can do that. It's like, cause I certainly can't. Right. And that's Michael in Not even remotely when he joins the acting classes that he gets as a gift and he like hits right. it out of the park. And it, yeah. in a way you're like, he's yeah. doing two different things in the same episode. And I just, yeah. I'm so incredibly impressed. It's rare to see it happen because so many people I think would screw it up. But it just kind of speaks to his talent. And it was a really well done setup. Yeah. Okay. I know you, this is probably annoying for you and talking about <laughs> the end. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know that David Chase likes talking yeah. about it far less than you do. So I'll just ask you, because this is what I've always thought was funny about the end. When I was in the hotel room, I was working at ESPN. I'd stay in this hotel across the street. I was like, I'm not doing anything. And then like everybody, you're like, is something wrong? Yeah. And my first feeling was I was let down. Right. Because right. I wanted yeah. this plane to land in some dramatic way. Sure. Sure. But as, as you can attest to this, this magical landing of a plane that we all want as the audience is, is like, it just doesn't. There's most right. even great shows. end in a way we were like, oh, right. it's just hard. Yeah. 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 So I guess I was disappointed from that standpoint. But hell, I mean, talk about something working. Now, when you think back to it, that people are still so obsessed with it. And it mm-hmm. always feels like once a year, especially if you give us time and access to share those thoughts, we will come up with some bullshit where <laughs> the, that same we all got whacked theory like pops up every 18 months as if it's it's fact. Right. Um, what can you tell us about the lead up to the end? And then ultimately, I know you've shared this before about what it actually yeah, yeah, was, because yeah. it's far more simple. And I think it's just funny. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I mean, at first I think, and, you know, as David himself has said many times, he goes, I'm just trying to do something different. I'm trying to entertain you guys. I'm trying to do something that you didn't expect that you haven't seen before. That was the motivation. Um, I think probably a year before the ending, he came in. I was sitting in the writer's room with Matt Weiner and David walked in and said, I think I got the ending. And uh, and he pitched it to me. He said, I think I just want to cut to black in the middle of the scene. And, and Matt and I both were like, wow, that's really ballsy and interesting. And then a couple of days later, he came and he said, I think I also have this song. I think uh, I think it's going to be Don't Stop Believing My Journey. I just heard it on the radio. He goes, you know, there's something really interesting and really poignant about that. So I had no idea how it was going to ultimately factor in. But ultimately, that's that's where he went, of course. And for me, I was like, you know, it's it again, you know, when I, when people criticize it. I always go, what did you think you wanted to see? Did you want to see Tony get killed? No, no, no. Of course. You want to see the whole family? Gets, no, of course not. But you want to see, wouldn't you just some big bloodbath? No, I don't know. I said, well, well, then you didn't have to see that then. You, you, you got whatever it is. And for me, what I took away from it was that, you know, when you're Tony Soprano, he, he may have gotten killed that night or he may not have. But when you're that guy and you're living that life and make those choices, your life is fraught with tension. And even going out for ice cream with your family is going to be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. Who's that guy? Why is that guy looking at me? You know, it's that's that's what he has wrought. And again, whether it happened that night or another night or never, we don't know and we don't need to know. So for me, it was it was 
I thought it worked great. And then, of course, of course, I watched it with my family in Brooklyn, my extended family, and they all flipped out. I literally had to just I said, bye, everybody. And just what the fuck was that? I was like, oh, I got to go. I'll talk to you later. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think as the years have gone on, people have come to if, if not understand it or like it, certainly accept it and 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 deal with it and certainly not at the fever pitch levels of, of uh you know hatred they were when it happened it's a win because it's 15 years later we're still talking about yeah. it and yeah. i appreciate I mean, I, it I, I i said go tell me the endings of you know five other shows that you remember and you know you can't you vet generally they're they're disappointing as you said i mean i think it's just hard to say goodbye to something you like so it's, it's never really completely satisfying Right. And the, the answer is the simple one, right? Just the anxiety right. of the moment. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think so. Okay. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, a couple things on that, and then we'll, we'll yeah. wrap with you. Uh, you said you, I know, you, you knew it was for Leo, right? So you knew yeah. you were writing this for Leo. I read the book. I mean, the first script, you'd be like, okay, this would be a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How yeah. did you define? what like the th- the three acts like how did you define the best way to put this together which again and i think is one of the best scripts ever thank you very much um you know it was really just a you know as you said if i would have written that entire book it would have been you know a 10 hour movie uh i had to find that through line you know the basically the the rise and fall and slight rise again of jordan belford you know in the most economical way possible so uh, you know, a certain amount of a couple of scenes were combined, a couple of characters were combined, and it's basically really just showing, you know, the 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 beginnings, the rise, and then the crisis and the ultimate destruction of this guy. Uh, you know, while you know, you know, picking, you know, the the main thrust of the story, the, the love story, uh, you know, is him and uh, and Margot Robbie's character and the betrayal with him and Jonah Hill and. Ultimately, the, uh, you know, the idea that this is a kid who, you know, is an ambitious kid from Queens who, you know, wanted to be successful and kept drawing lines for himself in the sand. And before he knew it, he was over his head in water and didn't know how he got there. Uh, so it's just really going through the book, you know, a bunch of times and circling things. You know, but one of the things I do, especially when I adapt something, I'll go through a book and I'll go, all right, well, this is a movie moment. This has to be in the movie. Oh, and this is the quaalude. That, that has to be in the movie. And this is a, I ended up circling the entire book. I was like, now what do I do? I mean, the whole thing is a movie moment. So I got to go, okay, I got to pick and choose the best of the best. So it's funny. I read that. Uh, my friend, Alexandra Milshon, who's a producer, sent me the galleys of that book. And she told me, uh, you know, I, I got the guy. It's not published. This guy, he just got out of jail. He worked on Wall Street. Will you read it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought I'm going to read 20 pages and politely pass. I read the entire thing in one sitting. And I called her up. I said, I'm in. What do you want to do? And we ended up going a couple of days later. Uh, we met with Leo's company and Brad Pitt's company and I think Mark Wahlberg. And then we were we were off to the races. Ultimately, obviously, it went to Leo and Marty and you know could not have been happier about that. What makes Leo so good that the rest of us don't understand? That someone on your side of things understands that we don't? But, you know, again, a, a fearlessness. Again, I mean, he he is just willing to go to places as an actor, I think that, you know, and just make it look so easy that I think, it, it, you know, it looks easy to us, but it's really, really difficult. He's incredibly likable. Uh, and, and in reality, too, he's, he's like one of the nicest guys, uh, you know, you'll ever meet. Uh, he's funny as shit. Uh, he's he's just sort of. You know, he, he's very deceptive. You know, he has like an everyman quality and yet he's clearly a movie star. But he's sort of, you know, he's not a movie star where you go like, oh, he's he's 
I, I can't relate to this guy. He just, he's very relatable and, and just really likable and, and funny and, you know, all of those things. So he just, he's just, you know, he's, he's the full package. He's, he's like one of those actors. I always talk about like Steve McQueen or Gene Hackman, where you want to put him in a, you want to freeze them at a certain age and go, I wish I could have 50 year old Gene Hackman available to play this role or that role. And Leo's one of those guys just like, just freeze him right now and just keep him around forever. And he could just cast him in anything. He's, he's amazing. <laughs> I heard a story, and I'm not going to show the names, but there, there's a writer who wrote a pilot, right, for a TV show. And mm -hmm. then the director is a well-known director. And the writer it was his first pilot, and it was, like, unbelievable. It got made, making it a big-time yeah. show. And he's on set. And they shoot a scene, and he's like, hey, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I wrote. And so the director stops the whole shoot and goes, hey, everybody, this is blah, blah, blah. This is his first time on set. He wrote the pilot. And so everybody give him a round of applause and everybody claps. He's like, now shut the fuck up. Because <laughs> there's this, this handoff moment where you're like, and, and, and every writer's different. Yeah. I imagine with Martin Scorsese, it's a little different being like, hey, here's the script because you weren't on set for this movie. What is that like knowing I've spent all my time on this? It's nominated for an award. Like, we knew this was going to be a big deal, but. I imagine with Martin, it's a little bit different because you're like, hey, I, I trust you guys. But right. it's still, you know, so much time and being handed off and, and hoping it still matches your vision for it. Well, you know, it's different. I mean, that, you know, there is a way to do what you just described. I don't know who that director and writer was. But there's a way to do that as that director that's that's much kinder and gentler <laughs> and, and, and much more productive. For me, the best relate the relationship between a writer and director is like architect and builder. And, you know, I always go, if you're the builder and you're working off these plans, it's a really good idea to keep in contact with the architect, particularly if you want to start moving shit around. Like, hey, what, let's, what is this support being doing here? Let's move this and, oh, fucking house will collapse. So it's pretty good, you know, if you have the screenwriter there to go, hey, I'm thinking of losing this scene. Can you just walk me through this? And this is what Martin Scorsese will do. And, you know, somebody at that level, the greatest director, you know, in American cinema will call you and say, can you walk me through what this scene is doing here? And I'll say, yeah, that scene sets up the thing later. And go, oh, okay. Do you think we need this, or can we do this, or can we combine that? So if if Martin Scorsese is comfortable enough to include the writer in on his process, I think you know that's I that would be my advice for any director. It's probably it's, then we're not your enemy, you know. And I get it, you know. You know, writers are very fond of saying, you know, the script, you know, it all begins with the script. And I always say, yeah, it doesn't end there though. Then you get the director and the whole crew. So when, you know, you see those credits at the end, all of those people had a hand in this. And obviously the director is the most important one. But it's really, um, I think, critical to have that relationship where you're actually, and, you know, and as a writer, you should be able, I should, you should be able to point to any line in any script I wrote and say, why, why, why these words and not that word? And I can tell you why I chose to write it that way. And if I can't, then I didn't do my job properly. And you're right. You shouldn't, you shouldn't pay attention, but I can justify every choice I make. And it, it, when it's done correctly, I think with anything and the same thing, building a house and the architect should be able to tell you the same thing. So, um, you know, that said, then, you know, the, the director now has to bring this to life and, and add, add uh, his or her vision to it. And sometimes, you know, they're, they're you know, certainly obviously in the case of Martin Scorsese, where he loves to let actors ad lib and play around. And sometimes that's where the magic is. When you get actors who can do it well, you know, Leo and Jonah Hill, for example, just let them rip. And, you know, you end up as the writer looking better for it, because at the end, some of the greatest lines from Wolf of Wall Street that are attributed to me are not mine. 
It's like that, that was Jonah Hill. That was Matthew McConaughey. That was Leo. I'll gladly take the credit. Uh, and I was very happy with the script I wrote. But they, these guys, it was, you know, they, I had an assist from the greatest actors and ad libbers and the greatest director. Uh, and in, in a perfect world, that's how it works. But it's it's a it's a group effort. Last thing, we'll finish here again. Yeah. Tulsa King, November 13th, Paramount Plus, where you can stream it. I watched the pilot and it felt like going through your resume and reminding myself of all the different parts of it, you know, and it, it, it feels full circle that you've got these comedic beats mm-hmm. and you've got this dramatic thing. And I know people have argued about Sopranos. Oh, it's actually a comedy and all this stuff. I'm like, I don't, right. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That seems a little aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it, it feels like Tulsa King's a combination of all these things you've been working on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it definitely threads the needle between dark comedy and, and drama. There's moments of great poignancy. There's action. There's flat out, you know, I wouldn't say slapstick, but there's some moments where, you know, the kind of Three Stooges violence that makes you laugh. And there's, and there's some really real jeopardy. Uh, but yeah, it, it, for me, it was a perfect blend of the stuff I like to do and the stuff I think I did well. You know, I obviously love the mob genre. And, you know, again, the idea of getting to work with Stallone was just, for me, the biggest thing. I mean, I've been a fan of his from since I can remember the idea of getting to, you know, to, to be on set and collaborate with him was, was amazing. He, you know, the great thing about him is you, you don't just get an actor, you get a writer, a director, a producer, an editor, a guy who's been doing this at the highest level for 50 years, who completely gets the entire process, who also happens to be really cool, really smart, really funny, and a real gentleman. Exactly the guy you hope he is going to be and and that he turns out to be, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, they always say, don't meet your heroes. And, you know, and this is one you can meet this guy because he's, he's exactly what you hope. And, and we had, we had such a good time doing it. And it was just such a pleasure to get to know him and work with him. And uh, I'm really excited about the show. Terrence Winter. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great meeting you. This episode is brought to you by hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, the pick contest continues. Uh, How'd you do last week, Kyle? Not well, so I'm I'm moving off of the the bedroom poster parlay for now. I just I need to get something on the board again. So <clears throat> I'm gonna I lost. We'll just put it that way. I lost. Okay. Uh, the, the the Raiders didn't score a single point. <laughs> I had them scoring 27, I think, or 24, and winning, and they lost and and got shut out. So, uh, uh, but maybe that's what I get for not picking a um, 
a quarterback as my the, the anchor of my uh, bedroom poster parlay. That was Chandler Jones. That was a legacy pick. My fault. Um, so I'll, I'll go something else just to get us on the board. Um, I just have to get in the in the in the red or in the black. Sorry, that's, that's funny. I didn't know what to say. And this is about gambling. Um, it's gonna be. I just want the under forty nine and a half in Lions Packers. <laughs> I just want the under. I was gonna do Lions plus three and a half, but I really want to win this one. So I'm going under forty nine and a half uh, for for Pack- Packers at Lions. That should hit. Okay. All right. Yeah, that should hit, man. That should hit. Uh, we've decided for Saruti that for however many of these he misses, he just will have to bet that many games. So if he misses like seven, then he just has to pick seven games. And I then can't he's wait till he has to guess a whole week. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fair. I mean, I don't, and honestly, I don't feel like it's any kind of punishment or anything like that. It's just, it's just a way to get back into it. Okay. Uh, last week, finally got off the losing streak, got a win, cranking back uh, to 500 here. Let's see here. Um, last week we gave out Minnesota to cover at home against the Cardinals. And a lot of people liked the Cardinals last week. This week, no one likes the Cardinals. Uh, we will give them out at minus one and a half at home against Seattle. Uh, 78% of the public betting on Seattle. So there you go. Those are our picks. Also, for those asking about worst take, Saruti really is our worst take spirit animal. And we just bounced it. We just bounced it for the week. So we'll bring it back next week. There was a million submissions, a lot of opportunity out there uh, for the podium, potentially. But some of them were a little heavy that I don't know that I wanted them to carry them through the entire podium season. I think we talked about Kyrie in three different segments. uh, And then some of the takes that were off of the Kyrie stuff. So we're just going to, they're all eliminated. They're ineligible for the podium. Uh, We'll be back with it on Wednesday of next week. It's just that Saruti really, Gets our gears going for it. So there you go. And those are the picks. You want details? Fine. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. Life advice. The email address is lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. I want to start it off with an awkward encounter with Chris Long. We always enjoy these. Send us your awkward Chris Long encounters. Actually, don't. You don't have to, but we got one here. Uh, I'm at Game 5 of the World Series and just met Chris Long. It was awkward, to say the least. I came with my sisters, and they didn't think it was him. So pre-game, Kelly, Clark's, uh, Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone came on. That song fires people up, even pro athletes totally. from all walks of life, right? Definitely. Music Has anyone ever come? What's that? So the music video is good, too. Do you like her show? Do you ever check that out? Like, as you pregame Kelly Clarkson's show before the judge shows? I'm a more of a Rachel guy. Yeah, it feels like it's more efficient. There's just more going on. You might she has a good something. rapport with her husband and stuff. Yeah, it's really nice. He makes cocktails. During the day, huh? <laughs> well, okay. East, East Coast time. So, you know, they're a little bit ahead of me. Yeah, that's fair. No, I get it. I get it. I still think the Kimmel thing when they had an open bar at the show and then everybody did two hammer. <laughs> Throwing out. We had like five pukers, Bill would say. Yeah. Has Bill done that conversation with Jimmy? I imagine a million times, right? Or at least one good time. I think I think he's done it on on the thing. Yeah. I think yeah. yeah. I think it, the statute of limitations has passed, but I don't think either of them were comfortable discussing it. But I feel like they just had to get the oral history out there. <laughs> But it seemed like they felt like enough time had passed. 
<laughs> it seemed like such a good idea. The problem is, like, in the beginning, people are going to be way too fired up. Like, you'd have to have it be a normal thing that's part of the routine, and then everybody's kind of desensitized the excitement of it. And it's just like, okay, you know, this is something that we do. Maybe they could slow bring it back. Probably not ABC Disney. That was one of happen. my ideas for the first pitch meeting at the ringer. I was like, all right, a podcast, but we're drinking. And they were like, great, Kyle. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I just, we just couldn't do it. <laughs> they were like, bring bring like two big ideas. And I think the one that was leading the charge was like, like a regular pod like we do, but just drink it to like loosen people up. Um, and they were just What was like, the reaction? Yeah, and what was the reaction of the room after that pitch? I think like one of those those smiles when you like pass a guy in the hallway that you kind of know, but you don't say hi and you just kind of tuck your lips away. That it was sort of like that. They were, they were just like, great. Okay. Anything else? I was like, yeah, stories pod would be cool. They're like, all right, great. That's your two. Good job. How old <laughs> so, were you when you pitched that first one? Uh, probably 24. <laughs> 24. <laughs> they're like, yeah, 24 year old guy who's a PA. <laughs> just uh, thinks that, uh, thinks we should do more drinking on our podcast. Great. But and then hey, look, look, drink champs running things right now. So who was wrong, really? Yeah, exactly. A lot of people have picked up on that. No yeah. wrong ideas, right? No wrong ideas in those meetings. Okay. Uh, remind me to tell you a smile story very quickly after I get to the rest okay. of this email, which I've done a poor job with. Okay. So since you've been gone, comes on as someone who had had a few beverages, I sang since you've been Chris Long. <laughs> That's worse than my drinking idea. <laughs> <laughs> But if you say it fast <laughs> enough, it does sound good. Since you've been Chris Long, God damn, that was aggressive. He immediately turned around and we had an awkward encounter. I'm literally a huge fan of his and I'm sitting here embarrassed and don't know what to do. What would you have done? And can you apologize to him for me? He was so cool, but I hope he doesn't think I was weird. Such a great guy. Man, you really like him. Uh, we'll see how the rest of the game goes. Oh, wow. This was sent. This was sent in game. Or <laughs> before. This guy really was freaked out about it. He immediately had to share it with us to get it off his chest. I could tell you Chris doesn't care. He, I haven't asked him about this one specifically, but I will, I will follow up with him shortly. Before we get to the other ones, I want to tell you about a weird smile encounter. The other night on a flight, I was aisle. I'm usually, I used to be all aisle guy. Then I was a window, window? guy. I've been, now I've been a window guy for a while. And you just have more room. You just do. Because when you think you have room in the aisle, you kind of don't. And I've got all sorts of elbow and knee encounters with the drink cart that yeah. tell you you don't have the room you think you You're have. actually doing it. It's like sitting at the service here. It's like, you can't have your foot there, man. I know you can mostly, but when we need it it's and it's there, it's a big problem. So Exactly. Um, I've been thinking about jumping to the window. I just haven't done it yet because I'm still kind of convinced you get more room in the aisle. I know you don't. No, I, I think the window downside is that you're not in charge of getting in and out. That's and so true. people don't really like that. And I'll, there'll be times too where it's like, you know, but if you got to get up once, everybody's got to get up. Like, yeah. that's just the way it works, you know, like deal with it. Sometimes I'll uh, go to the bathroom when I don't even have to just to exercise my get up ability. You know, it's like, what's the I, point? I do it. Yeah, what's no, I point? do it. I like to get up and stretch it out a little bit. And the aisle, like you're not in charge. You weren't voted anything. Like you just, you have an aisle seat. You're not in charge of us here in 24 <laughs> D, E, and F. Like there was no election. You just, you're there. So anyway, I had a middle the other day. That was brutal. But, you know, that's international you travel. That oh, okay. <laughs> it was last minute and they weren't going to do anything for me. And it was just the, the whole 
weird deal when you're you think you're Delta, but you're not. You're like the Delta International version of it. Aero Mexico, KLH, because they just Delta. I love Delta. It's been established, but the international arms they don't care about you. You'd be like, well, what about what about this thing over here? And they're like, here's your fucking B, bro. Shut <laughs> up. Um, but once I mentally accepted the middle, it actually wasn't that bad because I had this like hour plus two hour stretch of like, are you serious? Like, I'm going to fly from Mexico back to L.A. middle again. It's not like you're going to Paris. It's not. Both it's not armrests, it, right? Oh, it was established. Yeah, I was going to get okay. both armrests. But that's also something I want to remember, too, is that then when I had aisle window in the more recent trips, I go, you know, remember, you were you were pretty determined to get the two armrests as middle guy. Although some people will be like, do one off. So you everybody only gets one. And you're like, well, then window guy kind of lucks out because he doesn't yeah. have to do shit. And he could just so, sleep on the side. So that's what he gets. You just lean up against the wall and sleep. Right, right. But once I went, hey, I'll be fine. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. It was kind of like, you know, facing your fears. I just kind of sucked it up. I was like, hey, this isn't, this actually isn't the end of the world. Now, granted, if it was a nine-hour flight or something like that, I would have been like, I'm not going today. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I'll see. Grab my backpack, no overhead. Uh, the other thing, too, is that we all, this is not new content, right? This is, everybody talks about the absurdity of people getting off of a plane. It is really annoying when somebody seven rows back thinks that, like, you won some sort of fucking contest because the other people didn't get up in time. And then it's like, cool, now you just, it's like when a car doesn't let you in to then immediately be stuck behind a red light traffic situation. You're like, awesome, dude. You, you know, didn't let me in and now you're stuck there and one spot ahead of me anyway, or many spots ahead. So I purposely was like, Hey, I'm getting up. I'm grabbing my backpack. It's the only thing I have to do. And as I was turning and putting my book in my backpack and making sure everything was in there, don't want to be out another fucking set of earbuds, making sure you got your book. Uh, I get a tap from behind a little tap, tap, tappy. And it's an older woman. And she goes, do you mind? I'm like, what? What?" And everybody's getting their bags. I'm not jumping head rows. I'm not doing anything. I was aisle. So I'm going to get up because I'd rather stand up. I was like, what? She's like, your butt. It's in my face. Yeah. And you kind of want to be like, fair, but welcome to airline travel. I'm kind of glad she tapped you. I'm tired of asses in my face. I'm not going to be honest, Brian. I know it's a thing that's done and you, most people just deal with it. I'm just glad she kind of was. <laughs> I'm glad she did. Your you butt. like it. You like it's the move. in my face. <laughs> Do you think it was the joggers? <laughs> yeah, they could, you know. They, <laughs> yeah, was, well, yeah. she, she ta- and then she kind of gave me like an, a directional thing. Like you need to face forward. <laughs> I'm like, I, so I need to be, I need to be parallel to my, to my stuff here. Yeah. Hey, dude, it wasn't, it was. <laughs> Maybe 10, definitely less than 20 seconds. And it was like, I'm packing up my bag. And I'm turned back to my seat as I'm packing it. I'm not going to air do it. This isn't like the end of some set where I'm holding a plate in front of me. Uh, it wasn't that long of a time. And to be honest, she was pushing probably 250. So I wanted to be like, you think your ass is in somebody's face ever? <laughs> but I didn't say that to her. I actually gave her a slight chuckle. And then she like, she pushed her hand forward being like, you need to face forward. No, 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 no. You need to fit. And as I like turn, she was like, yes. <laughs> she was like so, staging a set. Like, nope. Right. Great. Great. 
Yeah, exactly. Like a plane was coming in and she had the two fluorescent lights and she's waving me like straight forward. Stand so on the X, she was dude. mad after <laughs> she was upset about it after 10 seconds. And you're right. There was probably some leftover damage from an earlier encounter. Yeah. Like this, this was, this was the residue of whatever. So I just sort of, I gave her a look and like a slight chuckle and a couple other guys were checking out like how I was going to handle it. Cause it was a pretty immediate request. And then to see her hands be like, no, no, you have to, <laughs> you have to keep. And then as I turned forward, she was like, yes, good. I, she didn't, she didn't really, I, again, I, <laughs> whatever, I was going to be off the plane in five minutes. I didn't, I was more laughing at the absurdity of, of how upset she was the whole time. Okay. <laughs> Let's get to a couple of life advices. Landlord check. I like this one. My landlord forgot to cash my rent check last month. At this point, I've not reached out to him asking if he received the check, which I place in his mailbox the first of every month. He's a very busy guy, travels a lot, so I'm wondering if our check is getting lost in the shuffle uh, of a week's worth of mail when he gets home. Okay. He owns a general contracting business for registrations. So it's basically the email is going to tell us the guy's rich. Uh, he owns a GC business for residential homes. He does really well for himself. Uh, he's in the Bay Area. I guess we could just say where he is. I'm sure there's more than one GC that has a, has a rental property. So, okay. So he's adding that it's also like a higher end area. In fact, he built the house my wife and I rent from. Uh, he built our place specifically for the rental income. He lives in the back of the lot, separate home and entrance, and we see him all the time. Oh, okay. Well, wait a minute. This isn't the first time he's done this. Last year, he forgot to cash a rent check as well. However, that time I did reach out to him, asking if he'd receive the check, which he confirmed he did receive, yet he never cashed it. At the time, I feel satisfied knowing I reached out to him. And if he didn't cash the check, that was on him. My question is, am I obligated to reach out to him again for last month's rent check or do I just let it ride? He clearly doesn't need the money. We don't necessarily need the money either, but who hates a little extra cash at the end of the month? He's a great landlord for the most part, so I feel guilty, but definitely don't keep it, but it doesn't keep me awake at night. Is this bad for the karma meter? Love the pod. Looking forward to the advice. Kyle, you're not, you're not telling him again, right? No I chance. Mean, don't ever ask if you know to collect the homework that's all i mean like if you did the homework that's great but don't ask hey you forgot to collect the homework because you know maybe there's somebody else in there that he's also forgetting that'd be cool you don't want to jam them up but also you know i'd say like maybe it's the least it a organized gc <laughs> landlord in the bay area right so, we, so you're yeah, looking out for everybody somebody else who's yeah and i think that you know give it a three-month window and then i think then the money's probably yours you know or maybe just throw it in the vacation fund and then if he's like, oh, yeah, that check is expired. Would you mind sending me one? I don't even know if he can do that. If you've sent a check and then he never cashed it. And then three months later, he's like, oh, yeah, for the December's, you know, do you think you could write that one again? I don't know. He might even be too embarrassed to do that. So I think you could just just let it ride. Be like, I'm, you know, be like me. I don't ever like look at my like balance my checkbook. I just assume it goes the it's going the right way. I don't write that many checks either. So but that's why I'm not like a, a crazy person. I just mean, you could be like, I thought you did it, man. I don't know. So um, I'd, yeah, I just let this ride, keep track of it. And then maybe you've got an extra, I don't know what you're paying, three grand or something. Just put it Bay in the area, nice part. house. Yeah, brand yeah. new. Maybe maybe it is 3K. Uh, I, I asked you that not because I thought less of you. I did the same thing when I was 21, I think. Yeah, 21. 
21. And by the way, I, whatever that 300 or 400 was split in a room with a bunch of other guys, like I needed that cash. That carries you. Uh, that was, that was a big, big deal. And they didn't cash my check. And I said something to one of my roommates and I said, Hey, he didn't cash my check. And the guy was like, you better, you better tell him. And I was like, no doubt, dude. It's <laughs> like, I'm not fucking telling him. Because like the roommate was looking at it as the rest of us paid. You didn't. Right. Like, why do you get the win? Um, I thought that was kind of selfish. So I then felt like it wasn't so much about not paying the landlord the 400 bucks for that month. It was more about my roommate, one of my best friends, Wanted being to mad. <laughs> yeah. Being mad that I got a free month out of the deal. So I, I told him, I was like, yeah, I'm on it, man. And look, those were rough Rosillo years. <laughs> so I, as soon as I said like, yeah, dude, no doubt. I'm like, I'm not fucking, I'm not reminding an adult to, to come get a next or 400 bucks out of me. Cause I probably already mentally spent it thinking I'm up in the game for the next 30 days. Uh, the other part of that landlord situation was, I think I've told the story once before, but apologies for sometimes repeating myself, but after everybody graduated and moved out, I wasn't done. And me and another guy went to them and were like, we'll extend the lease for the summer and then we'll pick it up September 1st because I love the house and I wanted to stay there. And we had a plan to have these other guys show up. So one guy sent a check, canceled it immediately. Another guy just never showed, never even came back to school. And then the dude that I was actually living with never paid anything the entire time. Oh, and so I was sending in like my... the ringleader of this? Yeah, so I was sending in my check for the three months, but that meant that if the house was two grand a month for the six bedroom house, which is absurd that two guys were living in it for an entire summer, uh, that was the summer we got the water shot off for a while. Uh, whatever. So this dude is freaking out because he's like, what's going on with the house? What's going on with the house? You know, the college season is stepping up. He's like, I'm going to rent this. Like you guys are assholes. We're like, no, we got it. We got it. We'll figure it out. And we knew we were jammed up. So you and were just kicking one- this can down the road. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Because we're like, we can't move in August, bro. Nothing's yeah. going to be open. <laughs> like, we got to think about ourselves. Uh, and then he broke into his own house through the kitchen window. And I'll never forget the sight of him and Daisy Dukes stepping into a sink full of dirty dishes, his sneaker into the dishes, and breaking into his own house, being like, you guys are the worst. I was like, yeah, I agree. I'm like, we're, I'm not proud of this current situation. All right, so to the emailer, as we spin a lot of time telling stories. I get what you're saying, right? I get what you're saying. And a younger me, I'm not going to pretend like most moralistic person here. And as Kyle brings up a really good point, we're not exactly balancing the ledgers like we used to back in the olden days. So things getting lost in the electronic shuffling of all of this stuff. And younger people listening to this, like, what are you talking about? Balance something? Like most people probably don't even look at their transactions, which is bad. But yeah, we used to actually sit there and figure out how much money we paid out, how much money should we deduct it from the account, and then figure out where we were at. Like you actually took the time to balance your checkbook and figure it all out. Um, yes, because he's rich, we can start to play that game. I mean, like any of this stuff, you start to kind of do the moral justification thing. You're like, well, if this, this, and this, and this, this, and this. The only problem that you're facing here is that apparently he's one of the least organized guys going is if he's this big of a deal and has a GC as an assistant, maybe the assistant sucks. Maybe you're in the clear. But I'm just warning you, it's going to be fucking weird if this has now happened twice. And then you're going to just have to play dumb, which is fine. You can play dumb 
And then you could say, oh, shit, I didn't even realize, man. Like, hey, look, I, you know, we wrote the check. I don't look at the balance or my wife handles it or, you know, whatever. I'm not very good. Man. There was yeah, actually 12 right. grand lying around. I didn't notice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> Stimulus checks coming in. <laughs> Maybe not for this guy. Uh, I'll just, I'll just say like, we both know because you wrote the email, you're not going to remind him you're because of the extra cash. All right. You're not unique in this. I'm, I'm not even saying you're a bad guy with it, but uh, there could be a time where it could be awkward and it's up to you to how, how well you can play playing dumb because that's what you're going to have to do. And there's a chance now, there's another part of it too, which, you know, if you love the situation, you love the house, you love the landlord, you feel like you're going to be there a long time, do you want to jeopardize it over a payment that you're admitting doesn't exactly ruin you for the month? Do you want to potentially jeopardize it? Because if I had had, you know, I've had tenants a couple different times and eventually you do kind of know, you know, like I was, I was on it enough that I was like, Hey, what's going on here? Like, why is this late or whatever? And I was never a dick about it, but I would just go like, what, what's going on? You know what I mean? Like I just, my fear for you is that it could actually be awkward and you could be jeopardizing a living situation that you really, really like, but we both know you're not going to write him. You're not going to remind him again because most of us, you know, it's just the way it works. You're already looking at it as your money because he didn't cash a check, which is kind of fucked up, but it's kind of the way it works. Yeah. Practice your conversation in the shower. I think that's just stay ready. Stay ready. You don't have to get ready. <laughs> it's like practice your surprised. What do you mean? What are you talking about? For which month? Well, which month are you talking about? I think that's perfect. Okay. All right. Yeah. Just practice. Which month? Oh, really? Oh my God. Wait, I got to check my web. But seriously, yeah. I want to be square though. If there's an <laughs> issue, I'll handle it immediately. That's perfect, man. Come on. That guy's not going to, that guy's going to be like, is he going to be his new best friend? I was like, that guy really cares The last about thing me. I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be a guy that's done it to you twice then emails a show if it's cool. <laughs> All right. Um, this one's a little too aggressive. It's good, but it's it's aggressive. I don't know. I just don't know that we can do it. I don't know. There's like this. There's like this imaginary line I have in my head of of stuff that I you know. All right, we'll do this one instead. My parents might hate my husband. All right. Uh, the issue has been weighing on me for years. My husband and I have been together for eleven years, married for eight, and the entire time of our relationship, my parents have never bought him a gift ever. To add a little more to the situation, my husband is five years older than me, but our birthdays are seven days apart. His birthday's three days before Christmas, and my birthday's four days after Christmas. So my husband gets to see me get gifts from my parents on Christmas, then four days later, get a gift for my birthday. He's never brought it up, but you can see it in his face. The, quote, hey, assholes, I just had a birthday and Christmas. Where's my gift? Wait, they don't get him Christmas gifts either? I figured as soon as you said that his birthday was right before Christmas, like every kid that yeah, is listening to this. into one. Yeah, everyone that's ever grown up with one of those birthday Christmas combos within, you know, a 10-day window, you've gotten hosed your whole life. It's just the way it is. You know, nobody's going, what I would spend on a June <laughs> birthday, I will add to that the equal amount of what I would spend on the Christmas. It just, right. just doesn't work, right? Everybody, Everybody's nodding right now that has a birthday that falls within those, those bookends. They're just like, yeah, man, like you're down in the game. You're just down in the game to the rest of the kids in your crew. But he doesn't get any Christmas gifts either. Let me, did I read that correctly? I just had a birthday and Christmas. So they don't get him anything. 
that's almost harder to do than just getting him something, really. Yeah, just right. You still have to like say hello to him, like knowing yeah. full well that we're going to be in the living room <laughs> and open. Because yeah, when I first when I first looked at this, Kyle, I thought, oh well, they just don't get him something for his birthday, and you're the daughter, and you know. But this is this guy's going over for eleven straight years, eight, <laughs> eight God. with legal arrangements. Wow. This is kind of like when somebody goes zero and five on their weekend picks. You go, that's harder to do than five and zero. Oh. That's that's <laughs> what this is. That's right. You could have got it something. If you tried to go zero and five, I think it's harder. Here's what makes matters worse: my husband is a gift giver, so he always comes up with the great ideas on what to get my parents for their holidays, anniversaries, and Christmas. Um, as the gifts are being exchanged all around with my husband, only opening what I got him, and whichever <laughs> one of my sisters picked him for secret Santa. Oh my God! Are the they whole a family? Is nuts. <laughs> All right, I've, I'll get to the email, but I have a very simple question. And before you ask, yes, his parents gave or uh, give me gifts all the time. All the time. We also have two kids, and my parents always get my kids gifts. So it's not like the idea of gift giving is foreign to my parents. It'd be a little weird if this email would like, and they jam up the kids. Basically, anybody with this guy's DNA is just out. All right, so the kids get gifts. I mean, again, that would have been really fucking, that would have been a massive twist. I don't even know what I would have been able to do. So here's the question. Do I ask my parents, uh, what's the deal? Do you hate my husband? Do I buy him stuff and give it to my parents to give to him? Thanks for any help. P.S. He listens to the show each day. So if it comes out at work, uh, it would read like the ultimate gift to him while showing him. I know he gets nothing from my parents. Wow, we're saving lives here too on top of everything else. Okay, here's my completely simple question. Are there any other indicators they hate this guy? Like, what's all the other stuff like? Does anyone talk shit about him? I mean, after a while, there's no way, like, if they hated him, they would have said something to the sisters. And then that would have gotten back to you. I mean, it's impossible to dislike somebody in the immediate family that comes in through marriage and then not have that person realize. So are you getting any other clues, any other stories, anecdotes? Is there anything else that you can work with here to understand why this guy's gone 0 for 8, 0 for 11 since origin? on getting one single gift. Is this like a tradition thing? Like, is this like, do people in their 80s know this? Like, oh, you don't get the man anything. Is it like women and children off off the sinking ships and the guys are just just like, sorry, you're a dude. Like, you're you're winning everywhere else, but here you're last. Is, this, is there like some sort of tradition where like, you know, the man of the house, like it's like the big piece of chicken in reverse. Is there is there some sort of gift thing the reverse biggest piece of chicken. Yeah, theory. actually, actually, nothing. You get nothing because you're the you're the head of the family or something, or the man of the house or something. Being, like, look, if it's not that, I yeah. If it's not that, then it's hey, are you guys crazy? I'm like, I'm sorry. I wanted to ask you this seven years ago, but and then and then if they're like, yeah, we just don't do it, then then you embarrass them by buying gifts for them to give give your husband. That's crazy. That's nuts. Hey, look, there's some sort of longstanding tradition. This doesn't no, make any no. sense. I think two things. First of all, being older than you, I can tell you there's not like an olden days, hey, you made 30% more for every female dollar and, you know. You, well, not that. The, just like you guys don't yeah. like gifts, right? Because you're, you're like no, a strong I, but man I, or something. <laughs> no. No. Clearly, he likes gifts because people that like to give gifts usually don't mind when somebody else steps up and puts a little thought into something. Okay? <laughs> right. Right. I... uh I know I'm the worst to get gifts for. When you don't have a family, you don't get a lot of gifts. So that's fine. I'm okay. But I actually was big into um, 
just the surprise, like pull over for a friend or something like that. Um, and a lot of the times I think I had like a weird stretch where I was, cause everybody would, everybody's aggressive, but I had a weird stretch of being friends with like only females. Like the only people that I was interacting with multiple times would be like females more often than any males during this weird stretch. That was like the, the end of the Connecticut run. And so I would just do, and then everybody would be like, oh, you're just friend zone. I'm like, yeah, these, these women are actually like married to or dating very close friends of mine. So like, I'm actually not that guy. I'm not trying to jam up uh, any reunions here. But the point is, is that like, when you like to give gifts, it doesn't mean you hate getting them either. Okay? <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy connection to make. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I wonder if the secret Santa thing where they think they're covered. That's might be the easiest one because you're not expecting the kids to be a secret Santa. That would suck if you're an adult and you got a kid making you fucking popsicle sticks for your secret Santa. So that would make sense why the kids are out and secret Santa. That, that might be it. That, that might be it. You it could be they think they're this. covered with, yeah, the Secret Santa deal. It might just be funny. Like, of all the times where every answer ends up being, well, why don't you talk to him? Just say this or whatever, which clearly we all have a hard time with in so many different walks of life. Uh, but it might actually just be funny a night that he's not there where, like, your sister's there and you're there with your parents <laughs> and you just softly transition into it. You know, this is so what do you hard, get Dan this year? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But like you start talking about gifts, be like, hey, I want to get you this or how, you, you know, and then, and then again, there's also a part of this too that has happened and I'm not trying to scare you here, but sometimes old people's finances aren't the way you think they should be. Could be. And I'm not telling you now all of a sudden to run home and ask your mom and dad if they're poor and that they're going to be living with you in five years, but you just never know. You never know. So there could be other reasons, but you've got to start asking yourself a lot of questions. Are there any other indicators that they don't like this guy? Well, if there aren't, then okay. Then I think the more important part is that they actually like him. They're just, this, this gift thing keeps going on. But I think you should find a fun night where you're hanging out, where he's not around, which I know is probably a little rare with the family and all that kind of stuff or whatever, but just something where you would get into the conversation softly, you know, side door it and then bring it up and laugh. And maybe you'll get an answer that you'll think, or maybe you just dawn on them like, oh my God, but it might just be the secret Santa deal. It might just be the, the process of that. They're like, we're covered every single year and you're a man. You're not our daughter. Like, why do we, why do we have to keep doing this stuff? Although he keeps hooking them up with awesome gifts every year. You think <laughs> one time the light bulb might go off. Sometimes old people are shameless, man. And I do think you might be right about that that thing where, you know, my grandmother, rest in peace, she just passed this last year, but she had a good run. And uh, towards the end, I was one of the only people that would just put up with her because she had all these things that just made it hard to spend a day. You know, she'd like trick you into taking to her doctor's appointment, which is fine. But, you know, like I'm home, I'm home for a little bit. And it's like, I'm sitting in the eye doctor waiting room, which is fine. Love you, miss you. But so she, one of the things that she, like she would just start cutting off these things from her finances, which we found out in the end, she actually had like a little bit she had like a, you know, a little bit of a nest egg or whatever it's called. Uh, you know? Kyle knew what like, he was doing. She had. <laughs> and uh, but the one of the things that she stopped doing was like garbage pickup. So she was like, everyone knows one of the rules when you come and see me, you have to take a bag of garbage. I don't care what you do with it. Every time I'd visit her, she'd hand me a fucking bag of garbage, like a full bag of tuna fish garbage because she loved tuna fish. And and she was just like, that's the rule. Everyone knows. But I, and so. That's an extreme case, you know, and there was other things. It feels that extreme. Off. It is where extreme. if you go to visit your grandmother, you have to leave with a bag of garbage every time. Oh, she would she have like, pay. 
the the county, like the office for the aging of Dutchess County would send, you know, these these poor people <laughs> that are just trying to help out. And then the, she sends them home with like a bag of garbage. So anybody and, that visited her got garbage. That was a rule. I think maybe she let the mailman get out of there without without taking a bag of garbage, but she would get like the, like there were three different programs, you know, for like people to help folks with the aging. And she was sending them all home with garbage bags, including her grandson, her daughters, stuff like that. So I'm just saying like, and then, it, and, but she had convinced herself that she had to stop garbage pickup. And it turns out, she, you know, maybe if she lived to be a hundred, uh, she would have been out of money, but you know, she passed with a lot of money. And so there was a bunch of stuff she didn't that didn't need to fall off the ledger that she thought she did. So maybe, you know, maybe hus- gifts gifts for people that, you know, don't share blood with them is just something that they convince themselves they can't they can't do. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a power move. I mean, you want to talk about I'm in absolute awe of her now. That <laughs> just being like. I just can't imagine visiting the one grandmother I still have. And then every time I would see her going here's your garbage oh dude cheap garbage bags without the drawstring either so it's like come on so what would you do with it you would just like find a cvs dumpster it would be in your car and then you would just find a place to or you'd put it in your own garbage i'd hide it in her yard oh my god the story gets better (laughs) what What? yeah she had had like a large large piece of property i just i mean i'm not taking it with me those other people did take it though i mean i guess i guess the whatever hourly wage they were making was good, but I wasn't, are you kidding me? So I would just- How long did this go on? Did you pick the same spot? Uh, It was like the last two years, really, which wasn't that bad, you know, because I was, the last two years I was out here, you know, so it wasn't like I was seeing her, you know. I mean, I was shocked. I was like, are you seriously doing that? She's like, yep. And I just was like, I'm not going to argue with you. I'll, I'll give you a kiss goodbye and you can think that I'm taking your garbage just like everyone else. I mean, it was, I probably only stashed like four bags, five bags over the last- you know, yeah, it's not the number. Bit. It's the story. It's the ask. It's all the other numbers. It's not about you, this story. Uh, and by the way, the fact that she ended up having some money is because she was telling, you know, she was making, she was cutting things out of her budget <laughs> where she was like, I don't need 40 bucks a month. Waste management. I got She's enough like, people give, rolling through here. Yeah. I flipped a bag yeah. of person, bag of head. So maybe, maybe the moral of the story here on the husband gift thing is that your parents are loaded. Because they decided to cut out things. <laughs> 11 when, years of gifts. <laughs> when they first met him, they go, here's one for the budget. We're never getting that guy a fucking gift ever. <laughs> That's life advice. Uh, thanks to Kyle, as always. Please subscribe to Ryan Rosillo Podcast, Ringer, and Spotify. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.